And I've, okay. got, and I've got my sippy cup. Okay, good good to go. Just don't tip it over because it's not truly a sippy cup. Huh? Everybody's got their drinks. Do you have your drink? Mm-hmm. Get your drink I've on. got my hydro flask. Woo! Yeah, me too. <laughs> Those things are awesome, man. So anyway, let's let's kick this off. So episode 21 of the Hot Isle. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. My name is Brent Piotti, and with me I've got... Brian Carpenter. All right, Brian, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Excellent. So, so today we, we do have a special guest, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, the goal of the show today is to continue this exploration of, of the cloud-native application, right? So in particular, we want to look at the, you know, I do quote-unquote classic P2 versus P3 because it is a, a relatively new conversation. But uh, we want to shift from infrastructure reliability in the P2 world to application reliability in the P3 world. So speaking of reliability, we have someone on the show today who very, very well knows um, application reliability, and he goes by the name of Jeremy Edberg. Jeremy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Awesome. So uh, for those of you that, that don't know Jeremy, we're going to get into his story. Um, Jeremy came from um, the likes of Reddit and Netflix and currently owns or is a co-founder of a company called Cloud Native. Um, but at both of those companies previously to Cloud Native, he specifically worked on reliability and uptime um, to ensure that the services that we know and love and use stay up and running. So um, with that, um, Jeremy, let's let's kind of kick this off, man. Let's um, we what we want to do is is understand your story. Let's start from from kind of the beginning, and we'll work our way forward in time to where you are today. So, um, let's see. How should we do this? Let's just go ahead and start. How how you started off in in school, right? So, um, if we go back to your what is it? Where did you go to school? UC Berkeley. Right. Talk correct. to us about little little known nerd school called Berkeley. Yeah, little known yes. nerd school. Talk to us about what you went to school for, and then how you kind of got a hankering for technology. So I went to well, my hankering for technology actually started uh, long before college, but uh, it started when my dad bought me an IBM PC <coughs> original when I was seven years old. Uh, but we don't have to go back that far. <laughs> uh, basically, I went to Berkeley to study, I wanted to study artificial intelligence. Uh, they had a cognitive science degree, which was the closest thing to artificial intelligence. Uh, and so I chose that as my major. Uh, and that was a, a fun major because it involved studying not only computer science, but uh, psychology and linguistics. So I got a nice breadth of knowledge uh, in college, uh, which I barely use at all in my career. Uh, but it was fun. Uh, what I ended up doing at the time was uh, I was living in the dorms, and I would go to the computer center a lot to, you know, use the computers and chat with the the, the nerds there. And uh, one day I noticed they had a job posting up, and so I applied and I got the job to be uh, an in-room uh, specialist. I would help people set up their Windows computers to get on the network, and it kind of just went from there. Uh, I actually dropped out of college in the third year to go work at a startup. So this is 1999. So at that time, you know, if you dropped out of school and went to a startup after four years, you would retire rich because that was just what everyone was doing. Uh, unfortunately, that put me right into 2000 and the crash. So that didn't work out for me or any of my friends who convinced me to go. Uh, so then I went back to school 
and then after I graduated, I started working at uh, eBay as a security engineer. Awesome. Uh, and then we acquired PayPal the same month that I joined, and so I started doing security for PayPal as well. Fantastic. They probably needed your help. I know in the early days, pay <laughs> PayPal needed a ton of help early on. Actually, uh, PayPal was pretty solid security-wise. Like most places I, uh, you know, I get very wary of, but PayPal I would still trust today security-wise. They were definitely top-notch when I started there and when I left there. So, and as far as all of this was going, you know, as you work on these cloud native apps and we start to look at the, uh, the idea that the kind of network runs itself with infrastructure as code and things like that, I think you're going to start to use that AI uh, degree a lot more than you thought you were going to. So, you know, as, as the computers start working for themselves and start doing things, uh, you know, we're just basically going to be wranglers for, uh, you know, whatever o OCP or whatever the RoboCop thing was. I forgot. It's, it's funny you should say that because it's actually totally true. I've actually started using some of those things that I learned more uh, as we've gotten, particularly in Netflix, as we were starting to make the infrastructure self-healing and, you know, the uh, feedback loops from the monitoring and things like that. There's definitely some AI involved there in predicting, uh, you know, future um, uh, capacity needs and things like that. So, yeah, definitely. Actually, I have been using those principles. And so, when you get into when you actually decided to name this company uh, Cloud Native, it's a it's a relevant topic to us at this exact moment. Um, is that something? Is that a word that's been around you for a while? Where did you learn Cloud Native? It's it, you know, there's a bunch of different industry terms that seem to overlap. A lot of times we use platform three. Some people use cloud native applications. Um, it really a lot, you know, it depends on somewhat of the infrastructure and what it does or doesn't care about the infrastructure. What made you guys decide to name it that versus some of the other options that are out there in the industry? So the term cloud native, the first time I heard it was uh, from a coworker at Netflix, Adrian Cockcroft. Uh, he was the first one who said it to me that I recall. Uh, and it was basically the reason we were using that term is because in Netflix, we had started in the data center in a monolithic application and moved to the cloud using breaking everything out into microservices. And so we would tell everybody, this is the cloud native architecture. This is the way that you build software to run in the cloud because the cloud consists of a whole bunch of commodity hardware that comes and goes pretty rapidly. And so you have to build things differently. Uh, you know, and, and I had made the mistake at Reddit, so I was actually the one responsible for moving Reddit from the data center into Amazon EC2. And what we did was we just took our application from the data center and moved it to Amazon. And we now know that that was not the best way to go about doing things. Uh, so, because it wasn't, it, it just, you can't just forklift your application. And so that's where that term really comes from. It's from, uh, you know, this idea of this is how you build things to run in an environment where you have API-controlled infrastructure that's coming and going rapidly. Okay. And so, uh, you know, you've done a couple of other things around cloud-native applications. It looks like, I mean, obviously, you've got a huge background in Amazon and your experience with that, and we definitely want to dig into that. Um, we're curious why you've kind of anchored yourself to Amazon. Is it intentional or was it, um, uh, you know, was it something where maybe it's just a, because of the things that were going on at the time? Um, we do want to get into that. Um, there is one thing we do normally with all of our guests. Um, we do a thing called This Week in Tech History. Um, it's, it's Brent's specialty here. And um, we just kind of talk to you about something that happened at some point in time during this week. And, you know, it, it, will al it almost always relates to the guest, and it does again this week. So go ahead, Brent. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, so This Week in Tech History, in, in November of 1988, the Morris worm tunnels through the Internet. 
So Robert Morris of Cornell University launches a self-replicating worm as part of a research project designed to determine the size of the early Internet. Um, it was intended to count the number of computers that initiated connections, but um, there, was, there was a problem. He, in a programming error, the worm, uh, well, it just kept infecting and replicating, um, and it spread across uh, roughly 10% of the, the Internet at that time, which is about 6,000 actual computers. Um, it caused significant downtime, uh, took uh, governments and universities down for two days. Uh, so at the end of this, basically Morris was dismissed from Cornell, sentenced to three years probation, and had a $10,000 fine. Listen, he got off cheap, by the way. I mean, <laughs> and today, today he'd be sued, in, sued into oblivion. Oh, yeah. So to me, it sounds like Robert Morris actually wrote version 0.0.1 of the Chaos Monkey. <laughs> So hopefully you got some credit for it, but uh, we're, we're definitely going to talk about Chaos Monkey, but uh, it's just interesting, right? I mean, um, so, so I've intention. actually met Robert. Oh, you have? Yeah, he, he's one of the founders of Y Combinator. Okay. Oh, wow. And uh, so when I was at Reddit, uh, Reddit was part of the first Y Combinator class, and so, you know, got to hang out with those guys. So I've actually met him. He's, he's a cool dude, crazy smart. So he's, he's doing okay. He paid, oh yeah. Well, he, so he's after, paid back the ten G's like ten, you know, a million fold now. Oh yeah, he's he's one of the co-founders of Y Combinator. I think his net worth is probably far more than that. But yeah, <laughs> he he got readmitted to I believe Harvard after he got ejected from Cornell uh, and finished his PhD. So that's I wonder, awesome. I wonder if he could write that story today. Write some write something accidentally malicious. Get kicked out of a top tier school. Um, go do a couple of things. You know, clean up the mess get accepted into another top tier school and go on to be a billionaire. Right. Uh, like, could you write that exact same story today if it happened today versus 1988? No, right. because you would have been, uh, you would have been stopped at phase one when you have been sued into oblivion and put into jail forever. Yeah. Can you imagine shutting down 10% of the internet today? What that would yeah. look like? That's not 6,000 people. That's like, yeah, that's a that's a billion computers probably. Billions, well, Kim right? Kardashian tried to do it with her picture this year, right? She tried to break the internet and it didn't do anything. Um, so speaking of trying to break the internet, you know, I actually saw that I saw that article on Reddit, um, and I'm a huge redditor, and it's actually how we found you. Uh, is, is I don't know if redditor, reddity, whatever. I read Reddit. Um, uh, my biggest curiosity is, um, you know, aside from all the things you did there, do you guys are you guys able to track how much time we spend? redditing on the toilet versus the rest of the, our world like <laughs> i feel like you know it's about you know 25 percent toilet time for most dudes um you know and girls don't do gross <laughs> things like that so uh i don't know if we've ever actually taken a survey but uh we can probably assume that at least 50 percent of the mobile traffic is on the toilet <laughs> so it's pretty cool stuff and i mean your background is fa fascinating right for those of us Reddit's like the, the ninth largest as of today, and it may have lost a little bit of traction in the last couple of months, but ninth largest site in the U.S., and it's the 34th on the globe, um, and, which is pretty cool as far as traffic, and that's according to Alexa. Maybe other things have different answers. You're the first paid employee. I mean, you're yes. basically, aside from the developers, you're infrastructure nerd number one. Is that, yeah. is that right? Basically, when I got there, uh, it was uh, the two programmers and Alexis who was doing basically everything else. And uh, it took like 30 minutes to deploy a new version of Reddit. Uh, and because there was, it was just two developers who would just kind of copy everything by hand. Uh, and so the very first thing that I worked on when I got to Reddit was actually a deployment system. 
to make that. So I cut it down from 30 minutes to about 30 seconds. Uh, and then that deployment system ended up outliving me by a few years. So I think they just recently retired that deployment system, which is actually just a really sad state of affairs because it wasn't that good. Yeah, and it's that's more of an issue of legacy again. It's like you're already using something. It's it's uh, the the work of taking something out and putting something new in versus simply starting all of your deployments over on some new platform and going from there that mm -hmm. makes more sense today is sometimes easier. And it's a decision of how much does this cost me and how much time is it going to take for me to do it versus what do I get in return, right? I mean, it's the same argument you help your customers with every day. Yeah, that is basically exactly the decision they had to make. They had limited resources. They had to choose what to spend their time on and fixing deployment was not one of those. It worked well enough. So you, you guys learned a ton. You already talked about one thing, which is you, you couldn't literally just pick up your application and shove it into Amazon and expect to have the exact same results you were having uh, inside your data center, you know, your traditional or classic data center or whatever. Um, what kind of pain points did you guys see as you really started to grow? I mean, you guys, you guys saw like a hockey stick of growth, right? It wasn't just kind of a nice trickle up. It was um, a huge megaphone and a huge jump in growth and all the pain, pain and outage. And when you had an outage, it was extremely public and everybody made fun <laughs> of it. So, you know, what kind of things did you guys learn from that? So what's interesting actually is that the traffic never took like a, a major jump. It was always, basically we would double in traffic every 12 to 18 months. It was a pretty steady climb, but rapid. Uh, but what would happen is because we had limited resources, we would basically wait till something broke because of scale and then swarm on it to fix it. Uh, so that's why we would have outages like that because we, we didn't really, we didn't have the resources to go proactive and get ahead of the curve on a lot of these things. But, uh, one of the big problems we had, like literally the second we turned it on in the cloud, uh, was this issue that we had where um, uh, when you loaded a page on Reddit, we'd make like 10,000 calls to the cache. And uh, we would do them all as individual calls. And in the data center, when you have a 0.1 millisecond latency between your server and your cache, that's cool. That works. But when you get to the cloud and it jumps to 1 millisecond, 1 millisecond doesn't sound like a lot, but it's 10x. And so, like, we quickly had to learn, oh, we need to batch our requests to the cache. We need to figure out everything we need and ask for it at once. And that really leads into one of our, the first principles I like to talk about, which is the biggest cost that you are going to have in any virtualized environment, or any environment, really, that's cloud-native, is moving data. So every other cost you have is going to be minuscule. CPU, network overhead, etc. Moving data is going to be where you're going to deal with all of your big scalability issues. And so that was just a perfect example of that, right, is is we needed to move that cache data back and forth, and we had to figure out a more efficient way to do it. And then yeah. as the site grew, you know, we would have problems with, like, load balancers, database connections, all the pretty typical stuff. Uh, when you do this horizontal architecture, one of the problems you have is when you have 100 application servers all making 100 database connections, right, eventually you start to saturate your database. Uh, so we had to get more clever about, uh, you know, putting some proxies in between, funneling those database connections, dividing them up. Uh, and, and then this is a lesson that, you know, we took to the extreme at uh, Netflix where, you know, you only connect to the services you need to connect to and each thread is talking to a different service so they don't get backed up, things like that. Okay, and, and you know, I think it's, if we look at the scale of, of, of Reddit, right, since we're kind of on that topic, right, you guys grew from, what was it, 
million like unique user accounts to over 36 million so you've got a Mm -hmm. ton of people on there and then you go from 40 million page views up to 7.8 billion monthly page views right so all of those those problems that happened on a micro scale when you get to the macro level it is uh, further exacerbated and makes makes life terrible so you really have to take architectural considerations absolutely uh, into yeah. account. And what's interesting is when you get to that scale, you have to start taking into account uh, non-technical issues. Uh, so my one example is when Michael Jackson died, uh, Reddit suddenly basically was on fire, and we could not figure out why. We looked at every technology reason, and we could not figure out why. And it turned out it was because everybody was posting that, that one TMZ article that came out first, and over and over, and really wanted to comment on it. And it we had to basically turn to the news to figure out why Reddit was suddenly falling over, uh, and so it was it was interesting. And then we had a similar, an opposite problem actually in Netflix, where traffic suddenly dropped off, and we could not figure out why. For the life of us, everything looked fine technologically. Eventually, we found out the reason it dropped off in Latin America was because there was an exhibition soccer match between Brazil and Mexico, our two biggest markets in Latin America. So all the Latin American Netflix traffic dropped off because everyone went to go watch soccer. That's pretty cool. It's kind of like uh, you made a tweet not too long ago. Um, I guess I can't, I couldn't hundred percent tell if you were still a Netflix employee at the time. Um, but you mentioned that every midnight on New Year's Eve uh, for the different time zones, their mm-hmm. midnight, the traffic would drop off for a little bit. And then back and then after midnight, the Netflix traffic would jump right back up to where it should be. Yeah. And they would do that for basically each time zone. Yep, that's exactly right. That's, yep, that's <laughs> I was a, on call for New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, and you could see that people would flip to watch the ball drop and then come right back. That's really, I mean, that's really cool uh, data visualization of what's going on. And if you're looking at uh, backend infrastructure and you're trying to do essentially visualization of your infrastructure and trying to see what's going on, I know you've done a lot of presentations around actually uh, the visualization of monitoring and metrics in the environment um, from mm-hmm. scale. Uh, I can only imagine the kind of things you guys are visualizing and trying to figure out um, just from graphs and stuff like that, what's going on or if there is a problem uh, outside of when something looks like it's normal, but yet you've lost a lot, right? Yeah, so. and that's exactly where that AI stuff starts to come in, right? Is We know is how do you detect those sort of external events? Uh, we actually had a project for a while that was scraping Twitter to try to identify these news events that would cause drops in Netflix viewing. So if, if if we go to uh, again to the, to the Reddit days, right? You're you're the re- mm-hmm. reliability, the architecture guy. Was there something from a from a resiliency and an availability perspective um, that was like this huge, you know, aha moment? Um, and and if so, did it happen um, in your private data center, or did it happen after you you migrated everything to to the cloud, the so- public cloud? The big aha moment was discovering the power of, of CDNs and caching. Uh, I don't actually remember if this happened after we moved to the cloud or not. I think it was. But essentially, we learned this lesson the hard way. We had a, a, a little button that you can embed, a Reddit button, on any web page. And so a bunch of people were doing that. And one day, one of the sites that was embedding a Reddit button got featured on the Yahoo front page. And at the time, Yahoo's traffic was, you know, a thousand times what Reddit's was. 
Uh, and so all of a sudden, that one button was just skyrocketing. And it was already cached, but we weren't doing it smartly. So it was still causing a lot of calls back to our servers. And that's when we really learned the power of pushing as much to the CDN as possible, especially for non-logged-in users. So if you weren't logged into Reddit, we, we, we made it so that essentially you never hit the Reddit servers. So little pro tip, if Reddit is down, just delete your cookie and it'll work again because then you're just hitting the CDN. That's, that's cool. And I, I mean, obviously there's some things that go along with that, right? There's a cost involved and hopefully that cost makes sense. Uh, it was actually my next question for you was, um, that sounds like a decision that a developer made, right? To go, hey, I need to go add these things and this makes sense to the business. Oh, we need to add buttons to the bottom of every page so that you can quick post this. Um, were there other decisions that the developers were making at the time when we look at this whole dev and ops type scenario and you know, you're know you in charge of the infrastructure, but they're making cool things on, that run on the infrastructure um, that, that was really just kind of making your job a nightmare uh, decisions? <laughs> that, I mean, for instance, even just the search, the, 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 rank, the search rank algorithm and, and the actual Reddit algorithm of where things move up and down has an impact on your job in certain cases as they're making random changes or don't. Was it something where you're like, oh, they're killing me right now? And if you look back on it, could you have fixed it today knowing what you know about how to manage your infrastructure and allow you to protect yourself from those kind of decisions? Well, so luckily for, for me, Reddit <coughs> adopted DevOps very early. We didn't call it that, but there was only four or five of us or six, depending on the time, engineers. All of us were basically writing code and running the servers. I was focused more on running servers, but everybody helped. So luckily, all the developers were totally knew about the implications of the code that they were making and how it would affect servers. Uh, I mean, we would sit and have discussions beforehand about, hey, we want to do this feature. It's going to 10x the load on this server. You know, what are we going to do about it? But luckily, uh, every developer that I was working with at Reddit was extremely aware of scaling issues and operational issues. So that was never really a problem. Uh, for like the button thing, I mean, I didn't even have to fix that. The developer who wrote it actually figured it out and fixed it. <laughs> but um, and and at Netflix, actually, we use the same DevOps model, so every team is responsible for running their own. That being said, if I were advising someone who is, you know, in a organization that separated ops and development, uh, what I would tell you is I would push for merging those together. The reason DevOps works so well is because the developers have to be aware of these things. They can't just write code and throw it over the wall because that's where you get these reliability disasters, right? Is, is you can prepare all you want, but if some developer who doesn't understand the operational effect of what they're doing goes and creates code that is going to 10x the load on a database and throws it over the wall to you, there's no way you're going to prevent that. I mean, you can have QA and so on and so forth, but it's going to be your problem to solve, right? So if you go to this DevOps model, to me, the DevOps model ties perfectly to the cloud-native model. The two kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. Your, your culture of your business, if you want to truly embrace a, a cloud-native architecture microservices, you need to also embrace a DevOps uh, style where the, you have small teams writing small microservices that are running those microservices and they're responsible for their operation. So it's an interesting point. We, we talk a lot about culture on this show and with various guests and um, whether that's regarding uh, big data and analytics or um, DevOps or various practices. Um, 
it sounds to me like a lot of these companies that are you know born in the cloud, right? Quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, have that whole culture thing down very well in terms of the DevOps model and being um, you know being more agile, right? So in in your in your new role um, at Cloud Native. Um, who are you focusing? Are you focusing on those companies that are born in the cloud or traditional kind of enterprise IT organizations? So right now, we are more focused on those that are born in the cloud. Uh, we're looking at startups who are just starting up, uh, companies that are already in the cloud but have people who know what they want to do uh, but don't have the infrastructure to do it. Uh those are what we're targeting now. Eventually, we hope to get big enough that we're going to be to the point where we're making it easy for enterprises to move to the cloud. But so what we found is that basically, if you even if you have this DevOps culture and model, you're still going to need a team that's responsible for providing the platform to run all of your code on for the whole company, or you're going to have a whole bunch of redundant work. And what we actually found was that about 25% of your engineering effort is going to be spent on just running the platform that's really what we're trying to replace for you at Cloud Native, is we're trying to make it so that you don't need to go and spend all this time building an infrastructure to run your code. Your company just runs your code, and we replace that infrastructure piece. Okay, cool. Yeah, and we want to dig definitely into into what Cloud Native is and does um, and some of the products that you guys have. Uh, but I kind of want to follow the lineage here, right? So um, let's, let's, let's move on to Netflix. Um, you know, I think Reddit was... Was uh, and, and redditors were, were sad to see you go. Um, <laughs> I don't know how the how the um, reliability um, has has maintained uh, since you left. But um, I guess the question is, why did you leave? Were you solicited, or were you looking to leave? Uh, so just to be very clear, to their credit, the reliability is just as good, if not better. Uh, those guys who are there are great. I just want to make that super clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And is that is that because they're using your tools again? Uh, <laughs> no. Well, maybe, but uh, no. It's because uh, I I hired them and they're fantastic. Uh, why did I leave? I when I left, the seniority of engineers at Reddit was me at four years, and the next person was four months. I was basically the last of the original six uh, that was left there. So it was kind of just time to move on, you know. It had been four years. It was time to hand over the reins to a new group to take it in a new direction. Uh, and that was basically it. I wasn't looking for anything else. Uh, I put up that blog post that I was leaving. Uh, I got a bunch of people saying, oh, I hate to see you go. I got one guy who sent me a job offer to help him remake the Star Wars prequels without Jar Jar Binks. That was the <laughs> best email that I got from that blog post. Uh, but uh, no, I was basically going to take some time off. But one of the emails that I got uh, was from the guy who would be my manager at Netflix who said, uh, hey, we are building a reliability team. We would love to talk to you about that. Uh, and so I went and I talked to them, and within a few days, basically, because Netflix's hiring process is super efficient, uh, I had an offer from them before I even walked out the door from the final interview. Uh, I had an offer from them. So they just basically did continuous integration of you right into their team. They're like, pretty much, yeah. This fits, <laughs> plug in, run. Like, pretty you know, much. That's yeah. pretty cool. Um, and is there, as you start to go in and do reliability and resiliency, 
Um, is there something that says to you, um, you know, obviously building the resiliency of the platform from an application perspective, is, is there a breakdown of how much of that is reliability versus the underlying uh, infrastructure that runs that kind of cloud native app? I mean, um, there's, there's problems in every infrastructure, right? If you're, if you're laying right on top of AWS, we all know the stories, I mean, the stories of AWS plus Netflix equals down on Christmas and stuff <laughs> like that, right? Um, you know, how do, how do those, how do reliability and resiliency kind of tie together in your job at that point? So my job at that point was only reliability and resiliency. Uh, and a lot of that actually involved sort of educating others at the company about how to build reliable infra uh, software. So uh, that was actually a big chunk of my job was, was education of others. Uh, what we realized early on, though, is that to get really good reliability, what we have to do is give visibility to our developers who are running their software uh, and self-service. So those were really the two key tenets of good of the platform and Netflix is self-service. So let the developers do as much as possible on their own and um, an insight. So let them see what the effects of their changes are as close to real time as possible. Give them the insight they need to, to find bugs and issues and so on. And then the third tenant was, was this idea of testing. And you mentioned the chaos monkey earlier, right? Uh, is this whole idea of if you don't break it in production, then we don't really know if it works. So let's just break it in production all the time. You know, it's like the old adage of uh, if you don't restore your tape backups, you don't actually have tape backups. It's the same thing, right? And so uh, that was the sort of the third big piece of reliability was uh, building tools that would break our infrastructure in ways that Amazon would break or in ways that software in general could break and exercising those. So postmortems were a big part of what we did. And out of every postmortem, one of our main goals was not only to figure out what happened, but to figure out what sort of testing we could put in place to make that happen over and over and over again until we got so good at it that it wasn't a problem anymore. And ideally, we would find an entire class of problems that we could test for. And that's where things like the latency monkey came from, because we realized that the problem had been caused by slow response times between two services. So if we could give developers a tool that would allow them to simulate that at any time, then we could make our software more resilient. I think that, so a uh, very interesting point. Um, what I want to do is, is understand uh, the way you differentiate between reliability and resiliency. They're, 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 I think they're words that sometimes get used interchangeably, but they are completely different things. So in, in, in your world, how are those things different, and how do you uh, apply techniques for each of those things? So in my world, reliability is building software that doesn't fail as much as possible. And resiliency is being able to handle it when it does. So resiliency is, is uh, what I like to tell developers is, you know, uh, be, be generous in what you ex accept and stingy in what you give. So if you're building an API... You know, if someone gives you a somewhat malformed data, try to work with that. Try to figure out what they meant. But at the same time, try to be as robust as possible in what you're giving to other teams. So that's an example of, you know, I want you to build your software to be reliable, give the best answer every time, but I also want it to be resilient. I want it to handle when it's not getting a good answer back. 
And does that, uh, do those problems exacerbate at scale? Again, when you're talking about tens of nodes, <laughs> it's not a big deal. Um, but I mean, do, it, does it, is it a, is it exponentially bad when you've got thousands or even tens of thousands or, or, you know, those kind of things as far as scale is concerned? It depends how you isolate it. I mean, everything gets worse at scale, but if you're isolating things well, then hopefully, so like in a microservices architecture, you still just have a small group of servers talking to another small group of servers. And if you can limit the scope of who's talking to whom, then you can limit the impact of any one outage. Uh, and so that's a lot of uh, kind of what the focus was, was, you know, why giving them tools to figure out why does this microservice call out to that microservice? There's no reason for it to be doing that. So let's figure out how to make it stop doing that. Things like that. And so when we look at like Amazon specifically, obviously the, the, the basis or the common thought process is Netflix is 100% based on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, for, uh, you know, being on the infrastructure team, uh, is that, I mean, it seems like there's always something that can't be put out there or isn't put out there. Is that 100% accurate or were they leveraging other clouds? What, did they still have on-prem for things like uh, financials or how did all of that kind of stuff work? So it is... When I left, it was 99.99% true. Uh, the, anytime we said it, we would put a little asterisk there. There was a couple of things that were still in the data center, uh, mostly having to do with financials, like you called out. Uh, and that was mostly because banks are really old school in their security and still believe that IP addresses are a good security key. Uh, and so they wanted it to be... They either believe that or they believe if we give you this particular piece of hardware, it'll be secure. So that was a lot of it. Uh, my understanding is that as of today, they are 100% out of that data center. Uh, I've talked to some friends there, and I think that's the case today. If that's not the case, there's maybe one or two legacy systems. And 99.9 is pretty, pretty darn strong. Yeah, I mean, effectively, the whole system is run in the cloud. And even those financial systems are, are isolated. So there's a cloud service that talks to them, and that cloud service handles a lot of the caching and things. So... Even if that data center isn't available, the system can go on. It's just like billing that won't happen. Like signups might break if the link to the data center is down. And if you're and if you're if you're consulting them today, um, and they're talking about starting over, moving whatever it is, um, do you feel like picking Amazon is the right choice for them again, or would you uh, direct them to something else? Would they base it on? Would they base their stuff on containers today? Would they use something else mm -hmm. that isn't Amazon? Would they have a multi-cloud um, vendor strategy, or or what would that look like if you were advising them today? So it's interesting. Earlier, you asked me how I got on the Amazon boat, and the way it started was back at Reddit, uh, we were looking for a provider, and uh, the founder of Twitch TV, Emmett, actually was friends with us, and we were chatting to him about this, and he's like, oh, well, I just discovered this like EC2 thing, and it's pretty cool, you should check it out. Uh, and so that's how we started on Amazon, uh, and it kind of went from there. At this point, I'm a big fan of Amazon in part because they're just kind of light years ahead of everyone else. Um, now, that's not entirely true about everything, so Google is definitely catching up. Uh, Google Compute Engine definitely has some advantages, uh, particularly in the networking space, uh, and with their integration with containers and Kubernetes and things like that, they're a little bit ahead of Amazon and ECS. Uh, so, you know, don't discount Google. They're definitely making a, a good, strong play. Uh, and any person that I talk to who's running Microsoft, I tell them, go to Azure. If you're a .NET shop, Azure is your place to be. 
you are going to have the best experience running in Azure. Uh, so they all sort of have their thing, but at the, I would still advise Netflix to go to Amazon today. It still has the, by far the best feature set, uh, the best capacity. So one of the big issues with the other providers is that they don't have the capacity to, to do the rapid scaling uh, that Netflix requires. Uh, that being said, even when I was still at Netflix, we, you know, we always said that we would love to be multi-provider, and as soon as the other providers had caught up sufficiently, we would be multi-provider. Uh, the ideal state is really that uh, you know you can load balance between any providers, including your own data center, right? So you could go back to building your own data center with your own virtual infrastructure and just use that as one of your many providers. So that's really the ideal state, is being able to go between all the providers. That being said, Amazon has so many features that are beyond infrastructure that it's really hard to, to replicate it. And that's a lot of what the competitors are facing, right? Is Amazon provides this entire ecosystem around your infrastructure that's really good. So uh, you actually, you brought up a good point. Um, Having the ability to to move wherever, depending on you know whatever you've you've got a whim and you want to move somewhere else, um, did did the idea of a platform such as Cloud Foundry ever come up in discussions, um, and are they a part of your discussions today when um, having people utilize you know things like the public cloud, Amazon Web Services, etc.? So there's two schools of thought on this, right? There's the school of thought of using some sort of platform that is generic across all of them and runs on all the providers that lets you quickly move from one to the other. Then there's the other school of thought, which is you take advantage of everything that one provider has to offer. Uh, I am in the, that second school, and that's kind of what our entire company, Cloud Native, is based on. It's this idea of you're already paying Amazon for all these features, whether you use them or not. It's built into the price of your infrastructure. So we want to help you take advantage of everything that provider has to offer. Right now, we just focus on Amazon. We'll eventually move to Google and the other providers as well. But we want to help you take the most advantage of what they already offer. Most of the other people are in the other school of thought, like your guest you know, last week, a couple weeks ago, HashiCorp, right? They are in that school of thought of building software for everybody, uh, for every provider, which is great. Uh, in some sense, but the problem is you don't ever get to take advantage of all that stuff that you're paying for at your provider. If you're using Amazon, you're not going to take advantage of all the other stuff they're providing because your tools don't let you. And, and that's actually, it makes a lot of sense. I, again, reading through your history and researching you, we appreciate you researching us, even if it was like two tweets down. Um, <laughs> you know, the uh, um, when, in researching you, one of the other things we saw was uh, JAWS. There was a tweet about JAWS and a story mm -hmm. that came off of Reddit about somebody who used a um, kind of a dynamic compute engine. And again, I don't know the AWS terminology very well, but uh, a dynamic compute engine where they just made 60,000 calls that basically processed something and inserted it in a database. Uh, and if it wasn't in your history, it was in Cloud Native's history, uh, your your Twitter account for your corporation. Yeah. And essentially, they did this, uh, and it was for Valve, and they got 60,000 hits that they put in a database and then imported and used it for a marketing-type project, and it cost them seven cents mm -hmm. um, to essentially use that single thing to you know spin up little micro-instances, and they only paid for the milliseconds they were using that process. And then when they were done, they shut it down and moved on. Um, 
really interesting concept of leveraging the benefits of that specific cloud to its fullest and to the best cost possible versus just you know unlocking between different clouds. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit because I think one of your products kind of has that that tenant, the uh, Yobot, the new one, um, mm -hmm. if I said that correctly, is you the did. idea of what's the easiest way or cheapest way to do this. Um, what if it's not Amazon, right? So we'll get into that in a second. Um, but you know, again, really cool stuff. Um, as far as as far as Netflix uh, is concerned, I think Brent, did you have one more question, or should we move on to cloud native? No, we can move on, man. That's okay. good. Cool. Um, well, we were talking about app classification. That's what you're about to ask when I interrupted you. So um, the idea of classifying something and then applying it to a certain type of provider based on the class um, is what we're kind of thinking about. So cloud native, mm -hmm. you've started, you've left Netflix. Um, you've been, you were there for roughly four years, I think again. Yeah. Um, and you started this new company. Obviously, you're taking all of this industry experience from some of the titans of scalable applications. Uh, and starting your own business. How'd you meet your co-founder? Uh, how did this all kind of happen? And what's the thought process behind the business? So the meeting my co-founder, so I've known him for a few years. He was actually one of the Netflix Cloud Prize winners. Uh, he built, uh, he won his prize uh, for building some uh, Ansible playbooks that helped run the Netflix OSS. Uh, and we've just known each other. And I actually ran into him at a uh, Netflix OSS event the day before I was leaving Netflix. And I mentioned to him, hey, you know, tomorrow's actually my last day at Netflix. I'm leaving, taking some time off to be with the kid, uh, you know, because I just had my baby at the time. Well, my wife had her, the baby, I guess. And uh, so I was going to take some time off. And he said, oh, really? We should have lunch next week. I want to tell you about the new thing that I'm working on. So we ended up having lunch. And uh, he told me about his idea for Cloud Native and what he was doing with it. And Cloud Native actually came out of his consulting business. So what he realized was he was building the same software over and over again. So why not just build it once and sell it as a service? Uh, and so he mentioned this to me, and I decided, you know, okay, my original plan was to take time off to spend with my baby, but instead I think starting a startup is a really good idea. Uh, so... Uh, that's how we ended up meeting and we started talking about it and I told him I had a few things that I really wanted to take care of before I joined him so we ended up joining up basically in May late May early June uh, and starting the project together and at the same time uh, he was talking to our other co-founder uh, who actually wrote Boto uh, which is the Python library for accessing Amazon uh, he wrote Boto when he was working for another company then got hired by Amazon to write Boto full-time for them, and effectively, he essentially got put in charge of unifying all of the AWS command line tools. Uh, so they're all pretty much based on Boto now. And so that was how, and I knew Mitch uh, from years ago at PyCon when the organizers came to us and said, hey, we want to do a session on Python in the cloud uh, because both, you know, cloud is kind of a big thing now. Uh, and I was a speaker at PyCon in 2010 uh, talking about Reddit. And he was a speaker in 2010 to talk about, uh, I think he was talking about Boto, but I'm not sure. And so they just threw us together and said, make a session. Uh, and we met and we're like, okay, let's make a session. And like a whole bunch of people showed up and we chatted about Python and the cloud and all that. And uh, so we just known each other for years. And then when we were doing this cloud native thing, we reached out to him. And uh, I'd actually tried to hire him both at Reddit and at Netflix, uh, but couldn't ever get him to leave upstate New York, which is where he, he lives with his family. 
Uh, and so when we started Cloud Native, we're like, hey, good news. We're a 100% remote company, so you can totally stay in New York. So that's how the, the three of us joined up. And so you guys are, um, were any of these, by the time you got there, did you actually, you guys actually start in May or had it started prior to kind of uh, you taking a little bit of time off, right? So um, Yeah, so when I joined, uh, Peter had already written our first two products. So that's uh, Bakery and Delta? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and give us, I mean, just give us a fundamental understanding. What is, what does bakery do for people? What does Delta do for people? Um, you know, wh where would they use those and what kind of person is likely to kind of pick that up? Yeah. So bakery is essentially bakes machine images. So if you're building a true cloud native application, one of the things that you've done is you have this idea of the immutable infrastructure. So you're not modifying your infrastructure once it's deployed. The idea here is you bake your image once, and you bake an image of, uh, that can launch and be ready to serve customer traffic. And so a bakery helps you bake those images. Uh, it takes your, your GitHub repository, your Ansible configs, puts them all together into an Amazon machine image. Then what Delta does is it actually deploys that for you in a cloud-native way. So it brings up, it, does, it follows blue-green deployment best practices. It brings up a whole new infrastructure with the new code, Side by side with the old one, it manages shifting the load balancers and it manages your auto scaling groups. So it's the only solution out there today, deployment solution, that actually understands and manages auto scaling groups. That's pretty cool. Um, so uh, you keep mentioning Ansible. Uh, we know they just got picked up by Red Hat, I believe. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, so is there are there other machine images that would work well in your environment? Are you looking at other ways to be packaging uh, to be able to do that besides Ansible? Or is that kind of just the de facto, it's the best one for Amazon? Uh, oh, no, no, no. It can do other ones as well. Uh, Ansible is just where we started because okay. that's Peter new. Uh, but uh, yeah, the other types eventually will be supported as well. Uh, or you can do it with none of those. You can actually just provide Git code and have that go out if you are doing something simple. Okay. So we've talked to Bakery and Delta. Um, Yeobot just came out, and uh, it won the most impressive technology prize at the AWS Pitch Contest. That was like literally what a week ago. Yeah, that was that uh, yeah, that was just before Halloween. Yeah. So tell us about Yeobot. What what is it? So Yeobot is a uh, it's essentially a Slack bot that helps you explore your Amazon infrastructure. And what it does is we have a proprietary model that we build of your infrastructure, uh, and then you can use Yobot to ask questions. So you can say, how much does this ASG going to cost me? And it'll take into account things like uh, all your auto-scaling groups. Uh, you can ask it, you know, find me all the instances that are tagged foo, and it'll look across all of your accounts, all the regions, and give you back a list in Slack of all of the things that are tagged foo. Uh, and this is, you know, the, we're taking advantage of sort of this, this chat ops trend. So chat ops is kind of new, but it's a really great idea, right? It's a, effectively a shared command line. And so we're really trying to take advantage of that, right? So if I want to know everything tagged foo, there's a really good chance that the other people trying to run my infrastructure also want to know everything tagged foo. And so now everyone knows that I looked that up. They might ask me, why are you looking for those? What problem are you solving? So this shared command line is, is really handy for that. Uh, it's something that GitHub has really been uh, pushing, you know, with uh, Hubot and having Hubot, Hubot that actually, uh, you know, manages all of their infrastructure and everything. Yeah, and Hubot was actually, who, who cares how it's pronounced, but uh, as long as we <laughs> say Yobot, right? Uh, Hubot uh, it was actually the first bot that I learned to deploy in Slack. 
Um, so, so there you go. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, really cool. Obviously, what I did was follow Joe, I followed a, uh, somebody's, you know, kind of recipe. Cause I had no idea what I was doing. I just clicked, you know, neck, neck <laughs> until I figured it out. But, uh, and we use that all the time. Um, so, to- so luckily for you, if you want to use Yobot, you don't have to follow any recipes, uh, because all you do is you click one button and you get a cloud formation template and everything else is taken care of by us. And he deploys himself obviously to Amazon. Uh, so Yobot actually runs in our infrastructure huh. uh, and manages yours. So that's how all of our, our software works. Uh, we run all the hard stuff in our account for you. And then we just uh, provide minimal access to your account so to get done what we need to get done. Is there, um, so that, I mean, that's something we thought about with both Netflix and uh, with this. Is there a, a cost overrun function that you guys implement inside of all of your infrastructures to help something crazy from happening and, and things just skyrocketing out of control because you weren't expecting it? Uh, we see a lot of that, right? Somebody's like, man, last three months, I was kind of 600, 700, 800 as my business grew. This month, I'm at 4,000, and my business didn't grow by uh, two, you know, 400%. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you guys ha- do you guys help people with that, or how do people even prevent those th- kind of things from happening? Uh, so Amazon will actually provide you uh, – they have cost alerts built right in uh, that are fairly uh, – what's the opposite of granular? Uh, but uh, – Kind of high level. Yeah, yeah, they're high level. Yeah. Now that being said, so at Netflix we actually developed a system that's open source called ICE, uh, and what that does is it does a whole bunch of cost analysis. And one of the best features of it was it would email the owner of every application and say, "Last week your expenses grew by X percent. Everyone else in the company grew by Y percent." And so it didn't tell you to do anything. It just told you. You know, you grew faster or slower than the rest of the company, uh, and if you grew significantly faster than everyone else, assuming you didn't just deploy a new infrastructure, you would know that you better go look at something. There was nothing in place that would like prevent runaway cost overruns other than instance limits, but uh, <clears throat> the general idea was to try and let let the developers do what they need to do and be responsible for making sure that stuff like that didn't happen. Uh, as far as cloud native goes, we don't have any tools right now uh, that help you with that other than Yobot's cost function where you can query about it. We don't have alerts yet, but monitoring is an area where we're going to go soon. Uh, monitoring, we, we know that insight's really important. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, uh, kind of a, a long... Uh, along the lines of uh, you know, just show back, charge back. Um, how are you guys monetizing your product set today? Uh, so we are a subscription SaaS product. Uh, so it's just a flat subscription for Bakery and Delta. Uh, right now, Yobot is free during the beta period. Eventually, it'll be a small subscription fee per month to use it. Uh, but we're basically monetizing on a subscription basis. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, so moving on uh, onto something that I, I I read on a blog. I think it was the I think it was the CloudNative.io uh, blog. Someone said, "In microservices is the only way to properly run a distributed cloud infrastructure." That being said, I usually advise companies that are just starting out to build the monolith. Was yeah. that you? That was me. Okay. So talk to me about that. So uh, building a microservices system is hard. Uh, Like I mentioned before, what we've found is that 
about 25% of your time will be spent building your microservices platform. Either every engineer is going to spend a quarter of their time on it, or you're going to have a dedicated team that represents a quarter of all of your engineering effort. So it's there's a lot of overhead to it that a small startup doesn't want to bear. Uh, and and that is why I usually would recommend monoliths to small startups that are just getting started so they don't have to bear that overhead. Uh, and that's kind of why our entire company was started is because we wanted to eliminate that overhead so that people could go straight to building it right. So they could go straight to using microservices without having to bear all of that overhead of doing it. That's so, pretty much our mission, actually. And so you're saying that basically they can build something that looks to them to be monolithic and you're handling the rest of the of the conversation. Well, no, what I'm saying is they can build uh, microservices, but they don't have to worry about all of that overhead that comes with building microservices. Okay. So they're still just focusing on their software. They're building small services, but they're not dealing with how do I deploy the services, how do I uh, manage uh, communication between them, service discovery, monitoring, all of that other stuff that goes with it. Okay. And so, I mean, and that's part of, uh, again, we like your, the whole consulting thing that you do for companies. Uh, it's going to be really interesting as you scale out into companies that are maybe uh, a little bit of a mix, right? And you said, again, you're starting, you're looking at startups or people who don't have a lot of infrastructure and helping them focus on their product and move away from trying mm -hmm. to kind of operate their business, uh, the, uh, the technical portion of the business. Yeah. Um, and, but now you've gotten into a bigger customer and those enterprises, and we're talking about building or buying, maybe they've got some legacy um, you're, you're very adept and very pro, you know, AWS type stuff. It, do you, do you believe that there, it, there are things that are viable to still just run in your data center? Um, or would you, <laughs> would you tell every, basically, I mean, you can't really say outright everybody, but in general, is your conversation, you should be moving that out, that you should never own infrastructure again, long-term. Like if that's, is that the goal in 2025 is nobody owns anything in your world or. So yes, in my world, I would say if you are not if you are still building stuff in the data center, your competitors are not, and they're gonna they're gonna move faster than you, and and there's a I have a couple of good reasons why right one is uh, when you're in the cloud you are not bearing the capital cost of unused resources, right so that's a big one. Uh, another one is you are not bearing the cost of having to manage those resources because they can do it cheaper and better than you. Because that's what they're experts in. Kind of like today, you probably aren't going to go and build your own power plant. At this point, the power company is pretty good at providing you with reliable power a lot cheaper than you can do it. Now, there's a few companies who do. Google generates their own power, right? I think Facebook does too. And so at certain scale, it becomes worthwhile to do that. And I think that's where data center infrastructure is going to go. It's going to go to the point where unless you are the absolutely largest of large enterprise, it's not going to be you're it's not you're not going to be the scale where it's necessary to run your own infrastructure. And and a lot of people throw out stuff like uh, my data is mine, privacy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but the cloud providers are solving this. They're working on it. And I think in 10 years they will have solved it sufficiently that most enterprises will be comfortable with it. So it's not a one-year, it's not a three-year conversation to you. It's a kind of a 10-year roadmap. There's still some things to overcome for that to be reasonable? Probably, yeah. I mean, there's certainly enterprises where it still makes sense to have uh, an infrastructure and for even some certain small companies. So, uh, you know, if you're doing something very specific, very new, it might make sense to be doing your own hardware. And so like, I'm, go ahead. 
I was going to say, like, like Twitch, I'm pretty sure, has their own hardware for running their live streaming because that's new, and that's, you know, they need control over their hardware and infrastructure to do that well. I've done some live live streaming in my, my history, and I know how hard it is, and it's not... Yeah. There's, I mean, and frankly, with people hating uh, Flash as much as they should, it's getting harder and harder um, to, <laughs> you know, to get actual live streaming, and there's certain things that people still want, you know, sub-second, you know, response, whereas mm-hmm. other people... When you're watching Bob Ross paint, nobody cares if it's 30 seconds delayed or two hours delayed. They're just wa- happy watching it. Um, mm-hmm. Although it needs to be synchronized across thousands of people so that they can all chat on Twitch at the exact same time and talk about the happy clouds. And so there's all these different <laughs> consist, you know, these things that they have to do um, with live streaming. It's very, it's not very fun to deal with. So right. you you mentioned capital costs of unused resources. The reverse, though, uh, operational costs of having somebody else run your data center for you. You take that same application you're running internally that you had a sunk cost on and you could uh, extrapolate it across three or five years. Now you're taking it, putting it in somebody else's data center. You already have a data center, right? You're thinking about, do I pick this up and move it into somebody else's data center? And the cost for that is 125% more, 130, 150% mm-hmm. more because you got to pay for somebody else's five generators in their football field and their security, or the football field of space and the data center the security, the walls, all the other things you have to deal with that you don't already own, and they do. Yeah. Um, so operational costs go up. Um, so is it a wash to say that something's 50% more expensive to run in a cloud, but you just don't have to pay for it for the 25% of the time it doesn't run? So uh, what I would say is, is uh, if you already have infrastructure that's still useful, you don't want to get rid of it and move to the cloud. You want to start doing new stuff in the cloud. Uh, you know, the, if you have infrastructure you've already got a, that works for you, there's no reason to get rid of that. Uh, and that, and that's why it took partially why it took Netflix so long to get out of the data centers because we were waiting for the end of the useful life of all the stuff that was there. Um, we just didn't buy any new stuff to put in the data center. So, you know, it's it, there's definitely an issue of of if you've already got the capital, you're going to want to use it till the end of its useful life. But what I'm saying is is the smart enterprise today isn't buying new infrastructure to put in their data center. They're not continuing to build. And as far as operational cost goes, I would challenge you to dive deep into that and determine if you really are paying more to be in the cloud because they are spreading that operational cost over lots of customers, right? So if you've got to hire a few people to be your hands-on in the data center people, you know, you got to pay them salaries and benefits and all of that stuff, uh, to potentially have them sit idle some of the time, uh, whereas uh, someone like Amazon or Google is is leveraging that person 100% of the time, maybe not just for you, but you know they're leveraging them 100% of the time. So I I question whether it's truly operationally cheaper to run your own hardware. Yeah, we have that debate pretty much every day. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the hardest math to do. Uh, yeah. is, is when you t- when you talk about human capital and a lot of the other things and how you shift those things and you uh-huh. know the existing sunk costs and things like that it's very difficult to really wash it out. So um, I don't disagree that if you're going to start something new start it in in a uh, cloud native format. Um, yeah. so th- then you get into uh, cloud native on-prem versus off, right? So mm-hmm. you, Amazon, um, until they start making something that looks like the Azure in a box that you can throw into your data center and build it inside your data center and then kind of slide it off to Azure, it has some things that are missing. It's not the same as Azure off-prem. Um, 
nor does it have the same resiliency as Azure off-prem allegedly. Um, but you do, there is no build Amazon in your off in your office type scenario where you can just mm-hmm. play with it inside. Um, there, there are things that look like that, right? So OpenStack um, is supposed to look like a replacement for Amazon to a point um, using all the same APIs and things like that. Why isn't that just taken off like wildfire? I can just install OpenStack on everything I own and I've got Amazon at my house. <laughs> uh, well, uh, probably the main reason is because uh, while they claim feature parity with Amazon, they don't have it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that just isn't there because uh, they're you know way they're playing catch up constantly with Amazon. Um, also, because uh, when I move when I put a workload in Amazon's US West two uh, region. I get three data centers. I can balance my workload across three data centers. If I have a data center, I probably don't have three of them in close proximity that are similar to each other. So, uh, you know, that's a big part of it is I just cannot get the same reliability and resiliency story uh, with my own data center unless I'm building a lot of them. I mean, look at, look at Netflix, right? Netflix is using uh, three regions... Uh, at three three uh, zones in each one, so that's nine data centers across the world, and they probably are using more now. But when I was there, that was what they were using, right? So, uh, who wants to go and build nine data centers? No, I think it's a good point. Uh, it's it certainly, I, I think the 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 ease of consumption and um, you know the quick quickness with which you can execute is probably what's. Um, the first thing that that entices people to move to a, a public cloud, you know, operating model. Um, the I, biggest yeah. reasonable objections I hear to public cloud today are <laughs> data sovereignty. So, uh, you know, I have friends who are doing stuff for the Canadian government. They require that the data remains in Canada. There's no Canadian Amazon region; you can't use it. Uh, and there's, uh, I. I talked very briefly to the the president of Estonia and he was like until the NSA goes away I'm not ever putting anything in Amazon uh, so you know there's that concern those are like those are the legit concerns I hear <clears throat> but then I hear a lot of people talk about like uh, I can't pass my PCI compliance well Amazon actually makes that easier because they've taken level three down and solved it for you you just tell your auditor Amazon and check 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 you're done with three of your seven PCI levels uh, you know, so compliance is a big one I hear that's probably not accurate. Uh, you know, uh, latency. Yeah, there's some extra latency, but you can work around it. Stuff like that. So how do you, uh, if we go back to reliability just in general, um, I think, you know, you can always throw money at having more instances, more availability zones, more, 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 more. Mm-hmm. At what point, where's the inflection point of, <laughs> budget with reliability and, and uh, how do you account for that and how are you talking to, to customers about that? So people ask me that all the time and unfortunately the answer is not simple. The answer is it depends on your business. So when I worked at eBay they would tell us exactly the number of dollars we would lose for every second of downtime because we knew because we were you know a transactional commercial website. It was very easy to calculate. Uh, working in Netflix it's really hard to calculate how much does a second of downtime cost Netflix? It's a monthly subscription. The only way we could truly tell was to cause an extra long outage and see what happens, but only Hmm. for half the people. 
And of course we're not going to do that. So there was no easy way to tell what a Netflix outage would cost per second. So it's harder to figure out the reliability. We, we were able to sort of guess. Uh, there were some natural experiments, so to speak. Uh, like when uh, the PlayStation Network would go down, all the PlayStation users couldn't stream Netflix anymore. So we sort of had a natural experiment to see like how many of those people stopped subscribing after that incident versus not. But even that's not accurate because most of them probably had a computer or some other device. So we made some guesses, and it just totally depends on the company. Uh, you know, like I said, eBay was easy. It was this many thousands of dollars per second. So for every second of extra uptime we get, let's pay this many thousands of dollars to get it. Hmm. And, and, and both those businesses, uh, I mean, eBay less uh, so, but uh, Netflix, again, if you have a massive outage during uh, prime Netflix and chill time, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot more painful. <laughs> it's a lot more painful than it is when the, the, the mass of your audience is at work. Um, so oh, you know, absolutely. If, if you have an outage that's from uh, 10 a.m. until 1 p.m., maybe uh, it doesn't feel as bad as the outage that's from you know 8 p.m. until 1 a.m. on Friday mm-hmm. night um, when you've when you've made a you know an NNC date right so uh, it's it, those are all variable uh, you're yeah. gonna lose a lot more people that way and we would actually account for that in our metrics so uh, you know an an outage during peak traffic definitely cost cost quote unquote more than an outage during trough. And that's part of why the Chaos Monkey only works from uh, 9 to 5 on weekdays, right? Because that's during the lower traffic periods. So, uh, you know, I did want to hit one last thing on Cloud Native, and then we have a couple other questions about uh, your, your, you know, your kind of world itself. As you guys look forward and what you're going to do, you've, you've hit Amazon. You're going to continue to do that really well, and it's kind of your wheelhouse. What, what is your next step? Is it... Uh, is it Google? Because you've said they're really moving well. Is it Azure because of the huge .NET world that's out there? Um, is it Cloud Foundry because it's uh, somewhat universal and could hit all three of those platforms, or you know, a couple and, and run on top of OpenStack too? Which ones are you guys looking at, and in what order, and why? Yeah, so that's that's a good debate we often have. Uh, right now, if it were today, and we were like you know, kicking ass on Amazon, we would probably go and do Google. That okay. being said, there's a lot of container technologies that are just, you know, starting to get really good, like Kubernetes. So in a few years, I could totally see us going to, to support Kubernetes next. Because Kubernetes runs on Google, and you can run it on Amazon, and you can run it in your data center. So that might actually be a good next place to go because that would help you take full advantage of everything Google has to offer, as well as running in your you know, data center or whatever. Um, but I'm not sure. It's also possible, you know, Microsoft, with, with their new CEO and their new initiatives, they are suddenly making really interesting decisions and choices, like the Azure in a box that you mentioned. So in a couple of years' time, it's quite possible that they might be the most interesting. Really, what would, what's going to drive our decision is where our customers are, are and where they're asking for, right? So if our customers are saying, I really, really want to be in Azure, then we'll go to Azure. If our customers are saying, I have my data centers and I really want to support them, then we'll probably go there next. Okay. I mean, well, that's, cool. why, so, that's how we chose Amazon in the first place because that's right now where all of our customers are. Right. right. And, 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 and to be honest, right, to your point, the, the number of projects and tools that they have available uh, mm-hmm. for the users is is pretty astronomical. 
Well, I, and and I know a lot of startup founders, and I only know one who's not using Amazon, and that's because he used to work at YouTube, and so he's super familiar with GCE and Google, you know, and, and App Engine and all that. So he's actually built his startup on App Engine and Google Compute. But okay, I, he's so, the only one I know. <laughs> speaking of tools, um, outside of the AWS realm, what what are some of the tools that um, you use on a, on a daily basis, and then what are some tools or technologies that are on your radar? Hmm. So one of the tools that I use, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but I find extremely helpful is Brew on my laptop to make my laptop as, as uh, Unix-y as possible and also because I can output a file that says when I get a new laptop, make it like my old one by running this, this brew, set of Brew instructions. Uh, other than that, though... Um, most of my tools are things like uh, Slack and uh, you know um, uh, Google Google Chat and uh, the the Google Video, uh, and that's because you know my company is is 100% remote, and so this is how we communicate with each other. We do everything through uh, Slack and Google Video, basically. Um, what about the, in the in just in the the DevOps space? Is there? Yeah, so in the in the DevOps space. Uh, it's been a while since I've managed a non-Amazon infrastructure, but uh, I do really love some of the stuff that HashiCorp has. Uh, you know, their their products are pretty good. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Memcache uh, still today. Uh, although Redis is uh, definitely taking its place because it does everything Memcache does, but also has uh, you know better data uh, data structures. Uh, Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, no, that's fine. I, I think I, you, <laughs> now, you, now, you, you've, now you've got me thinking. Like, what tools am I using? And and to be honest, I'm not managing an infrastructure anymore uh, that isn't using the cloud native tools because we dog food our own stuff. So, sure, <laughs> sure. Are there are there specialized tools for? I mean, we don't. Again, you you mentioned a lot of things I do know. Matter of fact, one of the guys on uh, multiple guys on EMC Code have taught me about using Brew to kind of rebuild your laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they seem to do it on like a constant basis. We even have like, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, reinstall VPN, right? Uh, through mm-hmm. just getting Cisco's VPN client and reinstalling that. Um, is there, what do you, what do you guys use to manage Amazon? It's not like, I, I assume you don't sit there on their website and do 90% of it. I know it has a good, <laughs> a good solid command line. Um, are there tools that are like Amazon specific that we should even know about? So everything that we do is Boto. Okay. Based. Amazon, it's the CLI, in large part because our co-founder wrote that stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, pretty much 99% of it is CLI, and the rest is actually through just through the console, uh, or you know our our own tools, of course. Um, hmm. You know, we deploy our own software with our own tools. Uh, we use Yobot to explore our infrastructure, uh, but uh, you know, otherwise, it's just the AWS CLI. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Uh, well, you know, we, we basically, we've gotten to the point where we've used a little bit more than an hour and we try to keep it there. Uh, with, as with most people, most guests, we could go probably another hour and keep finding (laughs) out cool things. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't even get to talk about continuous integration and continuous deployment and some of the stuff like that. Um, but, uh, we're here. So, uh, thank you so much. Um, you know, again, we appreciate you joining us. Is there, where will people come find you next? Uh, You do a lot of keynoting, uh, and a lot of really good talks. Um, where are they going to see in the next 90 days or so? Uh, so my next talk is actually uh, QCon SF. 
uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, I'll be doing a talk there actually about running a 100% remote team. Uh, and then uh, next year, uh, if you have any fans in Brazil, I'll be keynoting QCon in uh, Sao Paulo. Uh, that's mostly what I've got on the schedule right now that's confirmed. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and but, lo- uh, you know, they can always find me on the internet. Yeah. It looks like Twitter. everywhere on the internet is Jay Edberg. So Twitter, yeah. GitHub, your blog, uh, all that kind of stuff. Although I'm going to, I'm going to say your blog may not have been updated since roughly 2013 or so. Uh, uh probably. I- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of got sidetracked with, uh, work and, uh, the cloud native blog. So. Yeah. Um, so, uh, any, any reading suggestions for, I mean, again, people are trying to keep up. Um, where are you learning your stuff? What can you share with people for books, websites that you either read consistently or books you've read that are really educational to you? So the two websites I read consistently are uh, Reddit and Hacker News. Um, it, as far as, you know, it's, it's, it, you guys aren't the first people to ask me for a reading list. And I don't really have one because most of the stuff that I learn I get from talking to other people. Uh, so going to meetups, uh, you know, user groups, uh, things like that, uh, meeting up with the other uh, Amazon uh, folks, Amazon heroes, etc. So that's where a lot of it comes from, and and Hacker News actually is a lot of where it comes from too. But um, uh, you know, I there is uh, so Eric Hammond's blog is a really good one. Uh, Elastic, uh, I don't know how he pronounces it actually, but uh, just Google for Eric Hammond blog and you'll find it. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, our blog hopefully will be a really good resource soon. So I've been working on a lot of content to put on our blog, which will hopefully be coming out soon. So cloudnative.io slash blog. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I can think of to recommend. Super. That's awesome. Yeah. Again, we put people on the spot, so it's, uh, <laughs> you don't have to have them all memorized. We appreciate yeah, it's it. It's not fair. You have your questions written down in front of you, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> no, we have them memorized. I promise. No, <laughs> we've got like five pages on you. So again, thank you everybody. Um, we always encourage everybody to get social with us. So tweet us, um, you know, send us emails, do whatever, tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what you want to hear. Um, and you know, on behalf of the hot out, I'm Brian Carpenter. And I'm Brent Piotti. Jeremy, thank you again. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. Have a good day.